pray now that you'll open our hearts and minds to receive what you want to tell us through your word and your spirit will be working within us to continue to transform us more into the likeness of Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Rod, there's no timer on this, so I don't know how long I'm going. So uh, I'll better take my watch off just in case. Because <clears throat> I want to keep it under 45 minutes if I can. So strap in and get ready for the ride. Well, in the early chapters of Romans, we've been climbing a theological mountain with Paul, haven't we? In Romans 8, we reach the pinnacle. Romans 8, 1. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, can you imagine what it would be like standing in the dock in a court of law? You've committed a capital offence, and there's no denying it. The Crown Prosecutor has wound up the case against you, and there's only one penalty, death. You hold your breath. Your heart rate goes up as the judge prepares to give the verdict and sentence. And then the judge says, not guilty. You're stunned. No condemnation. This is the term Paul uses. And it's a legal term, meaning you're free from any debt or penalty. No one has any charges against you. These two words must be amongst the most astonishing words in the Bible. It's not just there's no penalty, there's no charge. God doesn't even remember it happened. This is a summary for us of the whole ground of Christian assurance. For Christians, there can never be any condemnation by God or separation from God. And why? Because of the work of Jesus on the cross and the work of the Spirit in our hearts. Now, we know that the cycle of God's dealings with his people, Israelites, has been one of great patience, but a repetitive cycle of sin, repentance, forgiveness, sin, repentance, forgiveness, but not that complete restoration which we can now claim through Jesus. Over and over and over and over, these people, God's chosen people, they slid back rapidly into their old ways. This explains the need for the repetitive rituals for forgiveness we heard about when John took, uh, James took us through uh, Leviticus just recently. These offerings were made routinely, but they could not achieve a lasting restoration with God uh, by his chosen people, the Israelites. These offerings had to be repeated and repeated. They were in reality just appointed to the lasting sacrifice of God himself in the person of Jesus, which dealt once and for all time with the problem of sin. Now, the legal situation at the start of uh, chapter 8 in Romans is quite different. Paul has been carefully reasoning from the righteous anger of God because of our sin to, uh, to our righteousness through our faith in Jesus Christ and then on to the persistent struggles we have with sin. As we heard last week, or you heard last week, I wasn't here, but for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And then he comes to this remarkable statement we I read at the beginning, and, and thank you, Mary, for reading the whole passage, Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And it's actually a very strong statement. Paul is saying that for Christians, there is no condemnation at all. It doesn't exist. And how can this be? Going through into verse 2, because through Jesus Christ, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. 
Now, that statement through Christ Jesus in verse 2 carries both with it the sense of in union with and through the work of. We, that is us, are left out of the equation. This is purely God's work in and through Jesus. Now, you might smile now because this could be the end of the sermon. The shortest one in the history of Cherrybrook Presbyterian. No condemnation. And I can now announce the next song, At the Name of Jesus, Every Knee Shall Bow. But I won't because we need to say more. It's such an extraordinary statement. We've got to unpack it a little bit to understand the eternal ramifications for us who know and love Jesus. So you can stop smiling now. We're going on a bit longer. This is probably one of the best-known chapters in the entire Bible, Romans 8. Paul has spent chapter 7 discussing the place of law, but in Romans 8 he's concerned with the work of the Spirit in our lives. The chapters we've been through describe the truths of justification by faith, our union with Christ, our salvation through Christ alone and not through our works. But this next section deals with how faith in the gospel of Christ can actually lead to a change in life for us. And the overarching theme is that of our security as children of God. Now we've got to remember that Paul's writing to Christians in Rome, and this church was likely made up of Jewish and Gentile converts, committed but young Christians, and Paul understands they needed a clear explanation of the gospel. Now, at that time, Rome was the capital of the greatest empire of the ancient world, and it was quite likely that he was writing to them from Corinth in Greece. Now, Corinth was actually a, a Roman colony established by Julius Caesar, so it was a fairly young city. Paul, though, you can sense through Romans, is a really thorough theologian. He packs his arguments tightly and coherently together. And of all his writings, this book, Romans, is the most detailed description of the gospel. And he draws deeply from the Old Testament and connects the Old Testament eternal truths with the eternal truths about Jesus and God's plan for our rescue. As we would have heard last week, chapter 7 shows that we still wrestle with sin. At the same time, we have a revulsion for that sin and a realisation that in sin, however pleasurable, we never really find lasting satisfaction. Chapter 8 moves on to addressing our present state in Christ and shows how we can live according to God's spirit. Now, you notice that Paul, in many of his reasons, arguments, will often say, therefore, and I know it's a bit of a cliche, but what is the therefore, therefore? Well, Paul is obviously looking back at something he's been saying before, leading up to that therefore, uh, John Stott thinks he's probably looking back to Romans 3, 21 to 27, which should be on the screen. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace, through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because, in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time 
so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Well, then he's boasting. It's excluded. Because of what? The law that requires works. No, because of the law that requires faith. And Paul goes on, as we see in chapter 8, to explain the ramifications of this no condemnation, this not guilty verdict, this sins are gone and I don't even remember you did them. Paul is saying we are free. The law of the spirit of life has set us free. But free from what? Free, as he says, from the law of sin and death. We need to remember what he's meaning by law here, and probably the most natural understanding would be the law of Moses. So we have the power of one law to enslave, but that's neutralised by the law which sets us free. So not only are we free from legal condemnation, but we're also freed from the actual power of sin. And moving forward, Paul shows how God achieves this. The law could not save us because our sinful nature continually prevented us from doing it, keeping it. But God was able to do this for us in the person of Jesus. Jesus achieved freedom for us by fulfilling the righteous requirements of the law. Jesus actually became sin for us and in his body paid the price. We know the cross. Let's see how Paul reasons this in verses 3 to 4 of Romans 8. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the spirit. God did it. Paul's quite clear. The law failed to save us because of our sin. But God did what we could not do in a way which preserves his righteous judgment. As we saw, sin was condemned in the flesh. But what flesh? The flesh of Jesus. Jesus becomes sin for us so that we can live according to the spirit. So God's righteous judgment was met in Jesus. We who now live, live according to the spirit. And this is what the rest of the passage today is about, how we can have life in the spirit. And Paul goes on to compare and contrast living according to our sinful nature and living according to the spirit. And there's a tension here, which I'm sure we all feel. It is a struggle to live under grace, although the ultimate end point is clear. We are at present, in a sense, part rescued people. We have been justified and reconciled to God, but Paul has indicated we are not yet saved, and I'll explain that. Our salvation is absolutely certain. It's rock solid. There can be no doubt about it. But God's invasion of us, his transformation of us through the Holy Spirit is not yet complete. But it is certain, as we see in Romans 5, 9 to 10, since we have now been justified by faith, but how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if we were God's enemies, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Being saved is a done deal, and it's a spiritual reality, but it's not yet our physical state. Our spiritual minds want to think about the things of God, the things that please God, the things which bring honour and glory to God. But our sinful nature, albeit dealt with as Paul has already mentioned, 
still tempts with worldly desires. Paul himself expresses the same tension, as we mentioned before and you heard last week. Romans 7.15. I believe Stephen read this really well. It's a tongue twister with all those do's. I do not understand what I do, for I want to do... I, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. I should have got, had you up here to read that, Stephen. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. Got it? I believe James reminded us last week of this war within and showed how Paul has unpacked this dilemma. In Romans 7.5, he says, Thanks be to God who delivers me through Christ Jesus our Lord, so then I myself, in my mind, am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. And furthermore, Paul reminds these Roman Christians and us that those who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. It's amazing, isn't it? That's our pedigree. We're no longer subject to the carnal desires of our fallen nature. The mind of sinful man is death. Romans 8, 6. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the spirit of God, they do not belong to Christ. We need to hold together what Christ has done for us at the cross and what Christ does for us, in us, by his spirit. Christ fulfilled the law for us. And now in union with Christ, we can start to actually walk by the Spirit. And Paul now contrasts these two different ways to live. Romans 1.32 says, Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Now let's consider these two ways that Mary read to us from Romans 8.5-8. Living to the sinful nature means we're hostile to God, we do not submit to God's law. In fact, we're unable to, sli- to submit because we're slaves to sin and therefore we cannot please God. But if we live according to the Spirit, we're controlled by the Spirit, we have life and peace and life to our mortal bodies. Amazing. Paul's general argument is there are two categories of people, those who live according to the sinful nature and have their minds set on what the sinful nature desires and those who live in accordance with the Spirit, whose minds are fixed on what the Spirit desires. But now Paul turns his attention to his readers, and he said, you, however, and he's writing this to us as well, you, however, and Paul has made the point that the distinguishing mark of Christ's people is to have the Spirit in them. And there are two consequences of this. Firstly, amazingly, life for our mortal bodies it doesn't matter whether we rot in the ground or cremated. These bodies are going to have life again. Each breath we take now is a breath closer to our final breath. But God will bring new life in our resurrection from death. It's extraordinary. Another amazing truth. Because Jesus Christ has been raised from death, we too will be raised from death. Look at verse 11. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you... He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. The second thing Paul says is not only life, but we have an obligation. Romans 8.12. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. 
He's saying that because of the Spirit dwelling in us, this guarantees us a bodily resurrection. Because of that, we have an obligation. It's not to our sinful nature, which was only leading to death, but an obligation to the Spirit who has given us life. An obligation to live a righteous life. Sinful nature has absolutely no claim on us. Paul states that we now have an obligation to live according to the dictates and desires of the Spirit. Moving on further, we can see how Paul amplifies this as we're living as children of God. Romans 8.14 For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again, but rather the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. It's hard to grasp the enormity of this statement. To Roman Christians, this would have made absolutely perfect sense to be adopted as sons. This was a legal process by which generally wealthy Romans who had no heir could adopt somebody to be his his heir, a child, a youth, or even an adult. And this adopted son had all the privileges and obligations of a biological son. Now, just because of the current situation we live in with our gender-neutral language, I want to quickly mention Paul's use of language. Because in our increasingly gender-neutral world, the, the word son might sound, exist, sound sexist, and in, in fact, in some translations, they do say sons and daughters. But in these few verses, Paul's using the word sons twice and the word children twice. Paul is actually using a very radical wordplay here because in Roman society, sonship was a status and privilege reserved for males. But Paul is applying it to all believers. He was a truly radical radical. We tend to think of him as being conservative, but he was rocking the foundations of Roman society. Male or female, we are heirs of God. Paul continues to undermine the patriarchy of the ancient world. In the community of God's people, as we see in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. Staggering. All one in Christ Jesus. Well, how do we become children of God? John 1.12 tells us, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And here in Romans 8, verse 14, Paul emphasises that it is having the Spirit of God that makes us sons of God. We didn't invite the Spirit in, This is entirely a work of God within us. In verse 15, Paul further emphasises that we, Christians, have received sonship. 8.15. The spirit you received does not make you slaves, so you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. Now, I'll get to the Abba bit in a minute, and it's not the group that sings from Scandinavia. Uh, I want to talk about adoption first. 
Now, I've mentioned it in the Roman context, but, and I'm not a Greek scholar, but more competent people than me explain that the word Paul uses for sonship re- literally means to sun eyes, turn into sons, which is why the uh, ESV uh, translates the word as adopt. Previously, we were spiritual orphans, but now we're adopted children of God. And adoption is something done by the adopting parent. The child hasn't any say in it. And we didn't. And then Paul moves on to the privileges we have because of this adoption of his, as his children. We have security. We have no need to fear the consequences for the future. God's adoption has taken care of that. And moreover, our status has changed from that of being a slave, I own you, to being a son. You're part of the family. And now the most extraordinary thing, we can call God Abba, which is probably best translated as Daddy. might look a bit silly in the English Bible, but that's what it's translated by, uh, should, should be translated as. How more intimate a relationship between parent and child can there be than that of call, calling your father Dad, Daddy? It conveys intimacy and security in one word. Abba was an everyday word, a family word. It is a word that Jesus used when he prayed in Gethsemane. Now, this intimacy with God is something, again, Paul brings up, which is extraordinarily radical for Judaism as well. And beyond that, he moves into the assurance we have as God's children, God's sons. Romans 8, 17. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. So the spirit which assures us that we're God's children also assures us that we are his heirs. Now, there is a little bit of a sting in the tail here. Now, and Paul is laying down a fairly strong case for the principle that suffering is the path to glory. And Peter, also in 1 Peter 4.3, makes the same point. But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Now, I'm not certain that either Paul or Peter is saying that we, uh, it is necessary that we will go through if you like, physical suffering. But Christians have done that over the centuries, as history has shown us. So it does certainly happen. But living a life in the spirit may well lead to suffering, and I I think we're starting to see that now. The secular world around us will find spirit-filled living a challenge. We can see now in Australian culture, Christianity is being marginalised. Our opinions are being silenced. The church is being regarded as not just out of touch, but possibly even dangerous. If we are truly to live a life in the spirit, it means being salt and light in the world. Salt was a preservative, and light opens up the darkness. We're called to live holy lives through the power of the Spirit. And it is this obligation, as Paul puts it, 
which is bringing the church into the great battle of worldviews now defining our society. Today is not so much a post-Christian world, but an anti-Christian world. And the church as an institution is not without blame. We need to reconnect as the body of Christ. This is what we're called to be. So much of New Testament writings now can resonate very much with us today. John 15, Jesus says, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. And if we flip over to 1 Peter, chapter 2, he says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. This is what our obligation means for the world. How much more relevant might we be if our fellow Australians could see us loving each other and quietly performing good deeds? The result is that pagans will ultimately glorify God. Romans 8 here in these, these few verses gives us a very explicit mandate for holiness because of the not guilty, no condemnation verdict to achieve for us through Jesus, for us through Jesus. And as we finish, let's just reflect on some words from Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. It won't be up on the screen. Let us not give up meeting together as some in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Let's go away from this place today rejoicing that God considers us as not guilty, sins obliterated, like they never existed. They've been dealt with. They're done, dusted, not even remembered. And let us encourage each other to live holy lives and let us be reassured by these words of Jesus from John 10. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. We are the ones who cannot be snatched. Let us rejoice and be glad in that and encourage each other to persevere as we proclaim Jesus in this world that needs so much to hear the truth of the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that we do have your word. We're staggered, amazed, astonished that uh, Paul can write there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation, Father, means that you don't even remember we sinned. It's obliterated from your memory. It's dealt with fully in Christ's death on the cross. And because of that, Father, we rejoice that we can be called your sons and co-heirs with Christ, that we will inherit through his death and glory our bodily resurrection how extraordinary, Father. This is either a fairy tale 
or Paul was a lunatic and liar and Jesus didn't mean anything at all, or it is the word of life and the word of truth, and we know that that is in fact what it is. We pray, Father, that we'll go out today challenged and encouraged to continue to live those lives that may act to preserve and shine light into the darkness of this world which so much needs to hear the gospel of Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.